What's something to think about as we return to Mark's gospel? Do you guys remember we were studying the gospel of Mark uh, before Christmas? Um, So we're going to study this. We're in the last week of Jesus' life, and it will take us uh, right to Easter. So, you know, right now it's gray and cold and winter out there, and when we come to the culmination of Mark's gospel... Lord willing, spring will be in the air and everything will be coming back to life. Uh, So anyway, just some exciting things to think about. It's a precious part of the Bible. Uh, We we value the whole book, but this last week of Jesus' life is just really, really precious. Um, Go in your Bibles to Mark 12. We're in the last week of... Jesus' life. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He left the rural, the shores of Galilee for the big city. And it's Passover, which is the granddaddy of all the Jewish holidays. You have Jewish pilgrims coming from all over the world, uh, just descending upon Jerusalem for this holiday. And uh, a city that at that time is probably about the size of Grand Rapids uh, for this holiday swells uh, to a crowd of three million people. Uh, so you just have to imagine that happened in Grand Rapids one time a year for a whole week. Um, they didn't have hotels, so it's just one big camping out party. Uh, people are camping out on the hills surrounding uh, the city of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is the, uh, the religious center, the Mecca, the Vatican, Uh, And what we're going to see in the last week of Jesus' life is this this huge collision that's going to take place. It's really a collision of temples. Jesus has declared himself to be the temple, the fulfillment of the temple. He's a walking temple in human form. And then there is the temple, uh, which is um, at the heart of, of Jewish identity and religious expression, And there's going to just be this huge clash between uh, these two temples. And really, up until this time, the conflict that Jesus uh, has had has been mainly with locals and commoners. But now it's going to be with the big boys. This is with institutional power. So Jesus, what he does every day, uh, this last week of his life, but really any of the feasts that he attends, and John's gospel seems to hint that he intended almost all of them. Uh, he, he just makes his way into the temple every day. And he holds court, and he's a rock star, and the crowds just flock to him. Uh, so the text leading up to our text today, Jesus shows up for Passover, and it's almost like he's William Wallace. You know, it's like, hey, I'm gonna go pick me a fight. And he goes right into the temple onto their turf, talks about this place being my house, and then just kind of acts like he owns the place, rearranges the furniture, all that kind of stuff. Today now, he's going to not just do this bold act, but he's going to have some pretty bold words about the people who run that temple. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Mark chapter 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables, and a man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, 
and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and he moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They seized him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head, treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Well, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, he will kill those tenants, and give the vineyard to others. And haven't you read this passage of scripture? It's a messianic text from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, these are all the people that run the temple, they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that Jesus had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left Jesus and went away. This is God's word, you can be seated. So this, I think, is the second parable in Mark's gospel. Um, So let me just say just uh, a, a few things about parables. Contrary to what some people think, uh, a teacher crafted a parable not to confuse his, his, his listeners, but to, to make his teaching clearer. Also, these, these parables were, were crafted, in a sense, to, to draw the audience into this live drama uh, where, the, where the teacher literally wants each hearer to find their place in the drama, where they start thinking, oh, that's me, oh, I'm this, I'm that. Uh, but most importantly, the intent of a parable is, is for people to hear it and hear it, uh, for them to respond to them, to, for them to act on it, to, to make a choice. I mean, every time Jesus teaches, he is going for one thing. He's going for repentance. He wants his audience uh, to not just get information, but through uh, acting upon what they've heard, mainly the act of repentance, that their lives would be changed and transformed. So that's what he's going for. Now let's look at the parts and pieces of this parable. Uh, First of all, there is a landowner, a landowner who plants a vineyard. Now in our world, uh, very few of us farm. 100 years ago, this would have been very differently. Uh, Most of us would have been farmers 100 years ago, uh, but, but not anymore, and so we don't farm. Uh, let alone uh, grow grapes. But in that world, in this ancient world of Jesus, almost every single person uh, is a farmer. This is how they, they sustain themselves. And the vineyard is at the top of the list of the things that farmers would grow. Now, their word for vineyard is the Hebrew word gan. And gan, G-A-N, is, is a word that we translate when we see it in our Bibles as garden. Garden. 
So when you think vineyard, you also need to be thinking garden. In fact, when I lead these tours to Israel, I see the remnants of these ancient gods everywhere. Uh, they, they practically cover the hillsides. And here are some pictures. Uh, those terraces that you see are what they call the ancient markers. And many of these ancient markers uh, giving definition um, to all these gans um, date all the way back to the ancient Israelites. So each terrace is called a gan or a garden. And I don't know if that's your idea of a garden, but this is the Bible's understanding of, of, of what garden is which is why even the biblical imagery for heaven, uh, this is all throughout the Old Testament, is every man under his vine and fig tree. Um, so heaven or heaven coming to earth uh, is depicted with this kind of imagery. Okay, so in this parable, we have the landowner who plants uh, a vineyard, a gan, a garden, and then he turns this garden over to some tenant farmers, and then he goes on a long journey. When it comes time for harvest, he sends some servants because he wants to uh, collect some of his profits. But when the tenant farmers see these servants that the landowner sends, they beat them, stone them, kill them. And the landowner keeps sending delegation after delegation. And every time, this is what happens. So what does all this mean? Well, remember, everything that Jesus teached, teaches is... It, is rooted in the Old Testament. He's always uh, doing commentary on, on his text, which is what we call the Old Testament. And so the landowner is God. This is what God does. I mean, this goes all the way back to the beginning. When God creates the world, he plants a garden. And now we're right back into our Christmas series. And the garden is a metaphor for the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is something abstract, and so uh, the Bible is oftentimes going to give concrete images uh, to, to, to flush this, this kind of thing out. And the kingdom of heaven is, is, is likened to a garden. It's a metaphor. Um, the, kingdom of heaven is a, the garden is a metaphor for the kingdom of heaven. And when you look at uh, when God cre creates the world, plants first garden, it's how he brings shalom to chaos. It's how God brings beauty out of ashes. In fact, uh, just even look at how this reads. Uh, the end of creation uh, ends with, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. And then a little bit later, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And see, Adam and Eve, um, like God says to them, here's, here's my entire creation. I want you to rule it. I want you to, to subdue it, to cultivate it, to steward it, to enjoy it. All that I've made, I'm, I, I'm entrusting it all to you. And, and then he says, and here's my garden. And he tells them to, to guard this garden with their life, to protect it, to nurture it, uh, because that's God's home. And then he gives them the mission to not just preserve and protect the garden, but to make the whole world a garden. And if you want to know why we've been made, why God made us in his image, it's for this 
massive purpose. This is our place in the universe. And I don't know if we think even such thoughts about who we are and why we're here. In Genesis 41, there's this description of Joseph. It says this, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger. He put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed Joseph in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. So Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, make way. Thus, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of the whole land of Egypt. You know, we read this, and and, and we see this as a description um, of Joseph, but when the Jewish people read this, they say this is a description of who we are, of what God made us to be about our place in this universe, about why we're here. God has put us in charge of a world, of his universe that has become like Egypt, chaos. I think this is a great time of the year to ask these two all important questions. Who are you? Do you even know? And why are you here? Do you know your purpose for why God made you? And I want us to see how how, how God's story just breathes massive purpose into our lives. And it kills me today to think how many people are just wasting their lives, how the masses of humanity live with, with no sense of calling or purpose. So many people's lives are are, are summed up by a report card or the latest fashion or a political party or the accumulation of more stuff or the shape of their body or the screen that they're constantly looking at. It's no wonder why more and more people today are looking for a reason to live, why so many people are checking out because their lives are meaningless. And why is this? I think it's because we've become clueless to who God made us to be and the partnership, the massive partnership that he's inviting us into to join him in his garden and to to be his garden and to be on mission to make his world a garden. In fact, one of the running conversations that we have in our house, and this goes all the way back when our kids were still living in our house, is... uh, we'd oftentimes just ask each other, are we bringing shalom to chaos? Are we in partnership with God to to bring heaven to earth? This all goes back to Adam and Eve. Now with this awesome privilege that God places on Adam and Eve, there is one very important stipulation that he gives to them. He says, You're not the owner, you're the tenants. God says, I'm the owner and I I want you to be my tenants of my garden, of my world, according to my instruction, according to my word, 
and for my profit, for my glory. And we know how this whole thing went. Uh, We know that Adam and Eve failed miserably because they essentially refused to be tenants. They insisted on being owners. They insisted on calling the shots and doing things their way. And as a result, Adam and Eve became disconnected from God and the world lost the garden and fell back into chaos. The Bible tells the story about how God doesn't give up on the world, how he plants another garden, how he plants another vineyard. And go in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter five. Isaiah chapter five, uh, starting with verse one, says, I will sing for the one that I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, he cleaned it of stones, he planted it with choice, a choicest of all vines. He built a watchtower in it, he cut out a wine press as well, and then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad ones. Wow, this almost sounds word for word, just like Jesus' parable that he just taught. I mean, so you have my beloved, and my beloved here is God. Um, God found some land, God dug it up, God prepared the soil, God removed all the stones, and then when this hillside is perfectly prepared, uh, God didn't just find any vine, but he found a choice vine, God planted that vine, Uh, and just even like in Jesus' parable, he builds a a watchtower along with a wine press. So Jesus' parable is doing commentary on texts like this one. And here's where we don't even have to start guessing anymore um, about the vineyard because Isaiah tells us the vineyard. Isaiah chapter five, verse seven. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines that God delighted in. So here's, here's the picture. Israel. God's special people in God's special place to be God's vineyard, God's garden, and to make the whole world a garden. And again, we're seeing that that God gave Israel the, the exact same task that he gave to Adam and Eve. It's to be tenant farmers. It's to protect and to nurture the garden of God and, and, and to be that garden and to make the whole world a, God, a garden. And God, as, as the landowner, says, I came and, and after I planted you, Israel, and, and, and just gave you this, this beautiful place to thrive and to blossom, I looked for some grapes, but all you produced was wild fruit. And God then spells out this imagery even more in verse seven. God looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but all he heard was the cries of people in agony. In fact, those two words, these things that God, uh, the, the, the fruit that, that God looks for, um, the justice and the righteousness. Uh, These two words in Hebrew are mishpat and tzedakah. Mishpat and tzedakah are paired all over your Old Testament. 
that they are often just right next to each other. Um, and mishpat uh, is something that we rightly translate justice. It, it's, it's just treating people um, in accordance to what every person deserves to be treated as being an image bearer, uh, made like God, made by God, made for God. It's just the, 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 the dignity and the honor that every human being uh, deserves. That's mishpat. And, and, and mishpat then also then, uh, when people are unfairly treated, it's to bring fair to the unfair. It's, it's to make right uh, what has been wrong. That's, that's mishpat, justice. Tzedakah is, is this word in the Hebrew that's almost impossible to translate because it's justice plus mercy. And see, that's really hard for us to compute because in our minds, justice and mercy are opposites. But what you have in this word, tzedakah, uh, where, where, where justice and mercy are, are wed together, um, if, if mishpat is giving people what they deserve, then tzedakah is giving people what they don't deserve. It's when we disadvantage ourselves to bring advantage to other people through acts of grace and mercy and a heart of compassion. See, this is why God can say to Israel, even though he gave them so much instruction, he can still say, one thing I asked of you, one thing I require, that you do justice and you love mercy. Because this so reflects the heart of God, tzedakah, mishpat, righteousness, justice. And this is how Israel is to be God's garden. In fact, one of my my favorite verses that I think even provides more um, imagery uh, to this is Isaiah 32. In Isaiah 32, it says, see, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. There are those two words paired together, righteousness, justice, tzedakah, and mishpat. The king here is the Messiah. <laughs> and the kingdom that he's gonna come in the rulers are us, his followers, his people. Uh, that's what we are. We, when, when we're followers of Jesus, we, we have authority. An authority to do what? It's, it's, it's what's stated in the next verse. Each, each one will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, like streams of Maim Kaim in the desert, in the shade of a great rock and a thirsty land. That's what Mishpat, Tzedakah, looked like. A refuge from the wind, streams of living water in the desert, the shade of a great rock. And see, Israel's mission is not just to to point people to shade, to living water, to refuge, to shelter. They are planted as God's garden to be living water, to be shade, to be shelter. And let me just uh, keep pushing this imagery because this imagery would, would, would so be in their minds because um, the, the vineyard is, is such a part of their world. The vineyard, the Gan. Um, for instance, when Israel took possession of the land, a land 
that God describes. He said, it's gonna be a land with, with houses you didn't build, with wells you didn't dig, and with vineyards you didn't plant. And so when Israel entered the land, these mountains are already covered with these terraces. And the farmland too, it's already marked out by what the Bible calls the ancient markers or the ancient boundary lines. Now, when you and I think farm, we're thinking hundreds of acres, maybe even thousands. But when God's people took possession of the land, each family got a terrace or a small family farm. Now, to us, land is real estate, but land in the Bible is everything that God entrusts to you. It's your talents, it's your time, it's your possessions, it's your intelligence, it's your sexuality. It's, it, it, it's everything that God has, has entrusted to you for you to steward all of that according to his word and for his glory. It's like the song that we sung this morning, uh, to, to, to magnify him, to, to make his name great. And I love it when the psalmist says, my boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. He's referring there to everything that God has entrusted to him. Can you say that today? Can you say, my boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places? Are, are, are you someone right now who is content with who you are? Are you content with what you have? Is, is your life right now marked by deep satisfaction? Is your heart oozing joy and gratefulness right now? Another place in the text, in Proverbs, it says, don't move the ancient markers. In other words, we are to be content. We're to be content with what God gives us. We're not to always like look for more and take some, someone's uh, that belongs to them and make it ours. Or how about this? Just, just look at one of those guns right now. Look closely. See, when you go to the land and, and, and very few of, of, of the guns are still intact um, just due to people not taking care of them. A gun is only as good as its walls. It's retaining walls. And it's, it's the retaining walls that keep the topsoil in place. So if one wall begins to decay, it's only a matter of time before the whole vineyard is at risk. And eventually the gun will be destroyed and you're gonna have what you see all over the place, a, a crumbling hillside. And when I see this over and over again, um, because the land is just covered with, with, with just these crumbling hillsides. Reminds me of the world we live in. Our world is a crumbling hillside. And I think this is why everybody today is like, we can feel this, we can sense this, and everybody's thinking like, how do we fix our world? How do we save our world? But, but, but the question that really, in light of all of this, that I think God wants us to ask is a very personal one. How's my garden? How's your gun? How's the soil? Am I, are you, are we nurturing? Are we protecting? Are we preserving it? How's the wall? Are the stones starting to fall out? And see, even what I like about this concept is, is, is that wall is also my neighbor's wall. And so there's all this interdependence here. Um, not only do I need to watch my wall, but my wall is also my neighbor's wall. And if his wall caves, it'll spell disaster for me. 
See, all of this is just, it, 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 it's, it's, it's encouraging because it's, it, it's so doable. That to be God's garden, this, this, first of all, is not something that any of us do this alone. We do this together. And then we're not called to, to, to fix our world. We're not called to save our world. What we're called to is to take care of our God and to help our neighbors take care of their God. And, and if we could just do that, we might become this vineyard, God's garden that starts to provide shade and refuge and living water for the world. I think this is the imagery that Isaiah picks up in Isaiah 58. And if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will, re- will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered gone, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up and Repair age-old foundations, you will be called repair of broken walls, restore of streets, of dwellings. It's a beautiful, profound picture and promise of what we're called to be. So when Jesus is, is telling this story, he's not just coming up with just a cute story about a farmer with the vineyard. He's actually through this story, explaining the story of God. And yet in his parable, he adds something. He adds the tenets. The tenets represent the spiritual leadership of his day, the the, the people who run the temple. And, and, And this is how Jesus, through this parable, indicts them. Because through this parable, Jesus is holding them responsible, ultimately responsible for not stewarding God's vineyard. Not stewarding it in accordance to God's word or for God's glory because what they're doing is in all their spirituality, they're using God. They're they're using their spirituality. They're using their spiritual position for selfish gain. They're owners, and they want to be owners. They don't want to be tenants. And they know this parable is directed at them. Look at verse 12. They see it. And so then these, these servants that the landowner owner sends, I mean, who are they? They're, they're, they're the prophets because this is what God does uh, with Israel over and over again. God sends his messengers and, and he's sending them to really address this age-old problem. The age-old problem is this, pretty simple. We refuse to be tenants. We insist on being owners. And anyone that, that comes into our orbit that, that reminds us that we are tenants, we just, we beat them up and we toss them out. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden because the nature of the human heart, it is to insist on being an owner. This is my life. This is my body. This is my mind. These are my talents. This is my money. These are my kids. These are my possessions. These are my rights. 
Mine, mine, mine. And how can we say that? Because we earned them. We worked hard for them. We deserve them. See, we hate this idea of, of being owned by anyone or anything. We hate the idea of being under any authority, even if that authority is that of a loving father. And then added to all this, we have a world that constantly screams at us uh, from the time we're really young that you are an owner and you are to live like an owner. You are in charge of your life. You are in charge of your body. You are in charge of your sexuality. You are in charge of your mind, your talents, all of it. But God looks at us and says, no, you're not an owner. You're a tenant. I'm the owner. Ask yourself this question. Are you living your life right now as a tenant or as an owner? Does your mind uh, say things like, or maybe even your mouth (laughs) comes out of your mouth, I did it, I made it happen, I built my life. Do you just assume things like everything I have is because I earned it, I deserve it, it's mine. That's a tenant trying to be an owner. Are you someone that always needs to be noticed? Do you you like the applause of of people? Do you live your life to impress other people? Do you like likes? That's a tenant trying to be an owner. Are you someone who's highly critical, judgmental of people who are not like you or don't think like you or even vote like you? And if you are, just ask yourself, on on, on what basis can you be a critical, judgmental person? You're a tenant trying to be an owner. You say things like, I got this. Are you someone that refuses the help of others? Are you someone who refuses the help of God? That's a tenant trying to be an owner. Do you feel entitled right now to anything? Do you feel entitled to a good job? Do you feel entitled to a good career? Do you feel entitled right now to your life going the way you think it should go? Do you get angry sometimes when things don't go your way? That's a tenant trying to be an owner. Do you think your talents and gifts are actually your doing? Do you think your place in this world, whether it be your status, your position, your money, your possessions, your mind, even your body, that that's all yours? It's your doing That's a tenant trying to be an owner. You see, God is so gracious with us. I mean, look at verses two through five. Over and over again, he sends a servant, and then another one, and then another one, and then another one. And every time, they dispose of that servant. God is still sending us messengers to tell us that we're not owners. I mean, starting with his big message, the Bible. Sometimes he sends a parent. Sometimes he sends a friend. Sometimes he sends a mentor. 
Sometimes he just sends providence, a life circumstance, a difficult season. Sometimes he sends a desert. Sometimes he sends a trial. You know, you may, you may have done a really good job of, of, of beating up and killing the prophets in your life and, and maybe even able to maintain this illusion that you have control, that you are an owner. But to those of you who think that, I just have to say, just wait. Because life, no matter how hard you try to control it or, or how often you insist that I'm gonna do things my way, life itself will continually remind you that you are not in charge, that you are not in control, that you are not an owner, that you are a tenant. And life will shatter that illusion of control that has just been so birthed in us since we were young. But let me ask you this question. What are you doing with the messengers that God is sending to you in your life? Are you beating them up? Are you treating them shamefully? Do you know that God's word says what actually what we heard someone give testimony to in the baptismal tank? God's word says that we are not our own. That we own nothing. Psalm 24 verse one says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He made it all, he owns it all. And that starts with us. And see, it's, it, it, it's, it's because of this that God would be so justified even in sending an army. He could send fire. He could send a legion of angels to these tenant farmers. But also, as we heard this morning, because the verse not only says we are not our own, it continues. It says we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. But what is that price? God sends his son. And here's where you have to ask, like, God, why would you do that? Why would you risk so much? Why would you, why would you make yourself so vulnerable? Why would you send your son and, and the simple answer to that question is because God is not a businessman who's looking out for his property. God is a loving father who wants a relationship with us. I love it how Jesus says, the, 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 the landowner says that they will respect my son when they, when they see how much I'm, I'm willing to risk, how far I'm willing to go, when they see how vulnerable I'm willing to become, maybe then they will reconcile. God's not looking for his prophets. God wants us. And God is willing to empty himself of his greatest treasure. God sends his son. For God so loved the world, he gave us his only begotten son. And they reject him. And they kill him. And Jesus wants these words and this parable reverberating in their mind as they do so, which is why he doubles down uh, and says this from Psalm 118 in verses 10 to 11, the, stones, the, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
And in the ancient world, the cornerstone is the foundation stone that the whole building is built upon. The whole building, God's house, is built on the cornerstone. And Jesus is saying, that cornerstone is me. And you can either reject that stone and then later be crushed by that stone, or you can build your life on that stone by surrendering to that stone. Because with Jesus, there is no in-between. And you always know, see this throughout the Gospels, that people are either falling at Jesus' feet and surrender to him, or they're picking up stones wanting to kill him. You're either going to love him or you're going to hate him. And, and, and the core issue here is it's not whether you're good or whether you're bad, whether you're religious or irreligious or spiritual or pagan. It comes down to control. Are you willing to be a tenant? This is why over and over in the Gospels, the people who should love Jesus, the people who should get get Jesus, uh, the pastors and the priests and and the people who who are spiritual big shots, and yet they're the ones who hate him and want to kill him, but the people who actually love him and surrender their lives to him are the sinners, the prostitutes, the little people. What are you holding on to? What are you right now insisting is yours? Are you angry? Are you depressed? Are you bitter? Are you wallowing right now in self-pity? Can't you see that maybe underneath all that depression about how your life is going right now is an anger about the reality that someone else is actually in charge of your life? That your anger, your bitterness, your self-pity is nothing more than your insistence on being an owner instead of a tenant. This parable is here to tell us something amazing. That God in his mercy is saying to us right now, we can let go of the wheel, we can lay it down, we can stop, insist on being owners, we can stop needing to be in control, we can give it up. And God will come right into our And he won't be a mean boss. He's going to be a loving father who wants to move into our life, into our chaos, and give us shalom. He wants, us, he wants to be a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm. He wants to be living water in our desert. He wants to turn our ashes to beauty. He's inviting us back into his garden through his son, and he wants to make us into a garden so that we can be his garden for a world that he And then when you look at how he does it, he gives up so much. He makes himself so vulnerable. He gives us his very self. This brought me to Heidelberg question and answer number one. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, my only comfort in life and death, is that I am not my own, but I belong in both body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved me 
who loved and gave himself. God, this morning, would we not just hear, but would we hear and hear? God, may there be massive repentance in our hearts. May we lay down being an owner and fall at your feet surrender to you. Thank you, God, this morning for the stories. God, you can take our ashes and turn them into beauty. It's what you do only when we become tenants at your